1: Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for joining us for uh, the show today. If you're listening in real time, I hope you uh, all had a meaningful uh, MLK Day yesterday. Um, we Yesterday, I want to mention before we get going with today's show, we aired a conversation, if you didn't hear the show, with Dr. Carol Anderson. She heads the African-American Studies Program at Emory University, a colleague, actually. And,
0: of, and it's a department. I it is that an out.
1: entire department. Thank you, That Dr. Andre Gillespie, who's uh, one of the panelists today. Um, Carol Anderson is the author of, among other things, White Rage, which really put her on the map And then more recently, One Person No Vote, which talks about voter suppression. And and I wanted to mention it today because I got a lot of notes from those of you who heard the show saying how important you thought the conversation was. And you said that that because—I asked Carol Anderson whether she sees that there's hope for us to learn how to live together— and she explained why she does have hope, and a lot of you responded to that and said that made you, that made you feel more hopeful. So thank you for that. If you did not hear the show, you can uh, you know, subscribe to our Political Rewind podcast and hear it there, or go to the website. Go to uh, gpbnews.org, find Political Rewind, and you'll be able to listen to my conversation, my MLK Day conversation with uh, Carol Anderson. All right, um, let's move into today's show. Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal Constitution, is with us. Hi, Kevin. Always a pleasure to be here, Bill. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Uh, Heath Garrett, Republican strategist, is back with us, usually here on Mondays, but we gave you the day off yesterday. It's great to be nice here. Nice of us, wasn't it? It was very nice. Yeah, very and nice. we won't deduct anything from your paycheck. <laughs> at least you're paying <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Andre Gillespie, who is a political science professor at Emory University, and the author of a new book on Barack Obama coming out right around Valentine's Day.
0: It's apparently out in the U.K. already, so if you're in England, you can go buy it here. You can buy it around Valentine's Day. And in the I US. got And
1: I got an, an email from Amazon saying we thought you'd be interested. Oh cool with a link to the your page on Amazon. Say the title of the book
0: again. Race in the Obama administration. Right, we're going
1: to have a longer conversation about that when the book is out there for everyone to get get a hold of. And <clears throat> excuse me, former Democratic Congressman from Cobb County, Buddy Darton. Hi Buddy. Great to be back by popular demand. Yes. <laughs> When well, you're not here, you should see the phone lines light up, yeah. buddy. It's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, they're all... Is he still, is he still alive? <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Barely. Barely. That's terrible. That's terrible. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, and, of course, you can watch us on Facebook Live if you'd like that. Uh, go to the GPB News on Facebook and join us there. Or you can tweet us at G P B. Just a quick reaction I'd love to get from all of you uh, in the studio today. So the Supreme Court this morning, as you've heard on the news, refused to take the Trump-Daca case. The president wants the court to determine once and for all, he believes, that the president does have the authority to overturn the DACA rule that was put in place by President Obama. Lower courts have said that the logic that was used by uh, Trump attorneys on this, government attorneys on this, was flawed and faulty, and so they uh, have rejected the proposals that the Trump administration has made, but now the Supreme Court has said nope, we don't want to take it up. Which probably means it won't be on the docket this year. Which means a year that there's still a year before they may take it up. And in the meantime, Kevin, it's one of the chips that President Trump says he's offering to Democrats if they give him his wall.
2: Right. I mean, once again, the Supreme Court leaves us hanging, right? I mean, uh, all this really means is that uh, nothing for probably a year, but maybe they're optimistic. Maybe the justices are optimistic in this shutdown that uh, that year will give Congress and the president
1: a chance to work this all out finally. Yeah, but I wonder about the politics of it. And Heath, let me ask a Republican. Uh you know, we, we now, with Brett Kavanaugh uh, hearings, most particularly recently, the, the nominating process for Supreme Court justice has become entirely partisan. I come away from this non-ruling saying, well— this isn't really a tr- if you believe that the court is really there to do the president's bidding because he's now put two more justices on the court they certainly didn't do it in this case
3: no that's that's exactly right i think that we you know looking at it as a, a judicial conservative or somebody who believes in the independence of the courts uh, that we it proves that we don't have activists on the courts who are just going to grab cases that politically might fit their philosophy and then rule on them, which we oftentimes accuse Democrats of wanting to have on the court. But in this case, it's clearly something that conservatives would like to see something done with. Now, remember, this is an arcane part of the Supreme Court. As a lawyer, we spend a lot of time in law school, buddy, studying this, right? The Supreme Court is loath to take cases until they are absolutely in conflict and they are ready for a major decision. And I got to go back and look at this case more specifically, but I do think it shows the court's not going to just jump into political cases just because they're popular and hot at the moment. They're going to stick to their traditions and their processes and their procedures. And I think it's a good sign that they won't the, you know the courts generally want the legislature to solve these types of issues and not have them be the final arbiter.
0: Well, I think in this particular case, because there may be the potential to have a legislative fix, um, you know, it may make sense or the court might find it prudent to try to sit this out and wait to see whether or not there can actually be a legislative remedy. Um, I think I would not be doing my colleagues at Emory who study judicial politics justice if I said that we thought that the court was non-ideological or that <laughs> it was apolitical. It's not right. Um, but at the same time, you know, when uh, presidents choose justices, um, they can't pick carbon copies of themselves. And once they get on the courts, they can't control them. And the longer they serve, the more different sometimes they yeah. look. But at, Justice Roberts their...
2: has been sending pretty strong messages about wanting to make sure the court's reputation right. stays intact and that they remain independent.
1: Yeah, he, you're right. The chief justice buddy has said, look, we're an independent branch of government. You know, we're not in anybody's pocket. And he's made that increasingly clear at... And, and made no secret of the fact it's because of some of the comments that President Trump has made about federal judges. I think the
4: court was wise not to wade into this one because they can always come back at a future date and make a ruling. But at the same time, I think it would have been very, very dangerous to step in, especially while these negotiations and discussions are going on. So I would commend the Supreme Court for not wading into this thicket.
2: You're generous calling
1: this negotiations, what's going on here right now, buddy, but I appreciate (laughs) what you have to say for sure. All right, let's come (laughs) a little closer to home for a while. Uh, Kevin Riley, the uh, AJC on Friday, released uh, a new poll uh, conducted uh, with your colleagues over at the University of Georgia, I think about 800 people, and they were not— likely voters this time, which is what you usually tend to use as a screen in your polls. These were registered voters, which gives you a bigger universe and also gives you the opportunity to sample the opinions of people who don't necessarily feel active about going to the polls and voting.
2: Right, right. So, uh, of course, it's hard to do likely voters when you don't have an election because you really can't ask them that. So you do registered voters and uh, gives you a bigger universe, probably gives you a group of people that are more like all Georgians. And uh, the reason we invest in this poll and we do this every year is because we'd like to ask Georgians – what they're interested in, what they'd like the re- legislature to act on uh, and get involved in because if you ask the legislators th- their point of view tends to be
4: a little bit not the same. Fair statement, buddy. I mean fair statement plus they've already announced where they are to start with anyway both before and after the election. So
1: this way at least you know where the people are and not necessarily the politicians. One of the big headlines that came out of this poll was uh, Brian Kemp approval rating or, or his favorability, however you phrased it, 37%. That's uh, off. He, that, that means he's off to a rough start, Kevin.
2: Right. He's got a long way to go. I mean, the unfavorable rating is 46%, which may be the more important uh, number of the two. And, uh, you know, he has had that consistent message really since... Uh, since the inauguration and, and any chance he's had a chance, you know, any chance he's taken a, or a moment he's taken to speak publicly, he has talked about unity, about us having more in common than, than we sometimes allow for. So I think he recognizes that he's got to get people behind him. And I, I don't think these numbers were a
1: surprise to, uh, to him or his folks. Heath, uh, I, I said on our show Friday— when we first talked about these numbers, and I'd like your, to see if you think this is correct, that if, if Kevin says it may not be a surprise, he, he's, he's quite likely correct. Brian Kemp and his people know the kind of campaign they ran. They understand the messaging that they used to win the governor's mansion. But that also means they understand that that was a turnoff to a great many Georgians. It got them over the top, but. Surely they get that they've got to make some ground up in terms of winning over more people.
3: Well, I think that's they they understand. I, I'm not sure that they would uh, agree with the total characterization there. They do understand that it was a bitter, divisive campaign that really was a 50-49 type of race in Georgia. And we had undertones, overtones, direct tones of race. Of the ethnicity, of gender, of all these very emotional and divisive wedges within our society and within politics today, so I don't think they're surprised at all that, that this was a divided, still a divided. And you add in registered voters, some people who stayed home because they didn't like either party, right? They stayed home and didn't vote. They're included in all this. Um, I think they would though, push back a little bit and argue that the general election, they tried to set a different tone. And remember, it wasn't just their tone. It was the tone of their opponent, who was also divisive and critical. And and part of that bait is Johnny Isaacson always said, in order for there to be a fight, you got to have two people swing it. And what's interesting in this case is, is that the opposition has not really conceded uh, in the more general sense of that term after the election, and uh, has been pretty aggressive on continuing their attacks against Brian Kemp uh, in, a, in a big way. And Brian's not been pushing back as hard as he will now that he's inaugurated. But
2: i got to ask you, Keith, how do you explain uh, Stacey Abrams' favorability at 51 yeah. percent and Kemp's at 37?
3: Well, I, I'd have to look through in these crosstabs here, right, and just you know figure out where the— you know, What's your gut tell you about why that would be the case? Is it just it, because we have— reg- Yeah, because her campaign has continued, right? I mean, people didn't pay attention, but she ran advertising after the election was over that— Put portrayed herself in a positive light and Brian in a negative light. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, it's our opinion that the media is slightly biased. Uh, as in ninety percent of all journalists identify as Democrats. Whoa, 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 Here Pew we go. Pew research is pretty pretty stead on that. And, you're and, you're
2: actually if you're criticizing this
4: poll, you're criticizing uh, the University of Georgia. Yeah, we well, know, that in and mind. I
3: love the my, my alma mater okay. with two degrees. Right. But, but, but we've got bias regret
4: here. I think that's a big big part of it too. It always happens that way that, for anybody what yeah. once, once it's over it's over and people feel sorry for, a little bit for the loser and and uh, when the winner steps up people really did i do the right thing so it's always a little bit about that
0: well but i mean the implications of this are that is that governor Kemp doesn't have a honeymoon right and so he's got to figure out a way to generate goodwill um and when i look you at you mean COVID- like
2: a teacher race
0: Yes. Something like that. But he's going to have to do other stuff. And I'm sure we're going to get to that later. But when I look at sort of where the dividing lines are, there's a racial dividing line here. Um, You know, there's some softness with Governor Kemp amongst Republicans. So his favorability rating amongst Republicans is only in the high 70s. So there's still some Republicans who, you know, are still a little bit lukewarm toward him. And the correlation seems to be with age. So older people tend to like Brian Kemp and younger people tend to like Stacey Abrams more. So, you know, there are things that we can look at. And so, you know, Governor Kemp is going to have to be kind of on a charm tour perhaps an apology tour you know at some point and he's not gonna win everybody over but he's gonna have to demonstrate through action that he meant everything he said in his inaugural
4: I still think he's suffering, too, from his primary campaign, which was a bruising campaign, as we all remember. And still those ads, those shotgun ads and those, those uh, ads with the pickup truck rounding up the illegals, that made a deep, deep impression, not only among the Republican voters, but also among the independents and the Democratic voters. And he's got to figure some way to uh, live, live that down now. It's a tough Stuff because his, his image was set by himself in that primary and people are still holding him to it, I think.
1: Andre, the AJC poll has Brian Kemp and President Trump's approval rating at the same number 37%. Does that tell you that moving forward, for the time, let me say it a different way does that tell you that for the time being, Kemp's fate with voters is tied to President Trump? Or does does he have more than enough opportunity to move be, be independent of that? Is it coincidence that they just are basically at the same number?
0: So the only way that I would know that for sure is if I saw a cross tab right. of Trump favorability and camp favorability. Yeah. So if actually, don't I don't see that, that. In, 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 in these the cross poll. tabs and these and right. these no, banners.
2: Cr- the crosstabs are available to you. I'll email to no, you.
0: No, no. I need <laughs> to see the raw data so I could run it myself if I saw that because they don't have that variable.
3: <laughs> I'll yeah, that bill, though. I think my gut is, is that they are tied, They right? probably they, are. They are because of what happened. Last year's entire election everywhere. <laughs> Suburbs, rural America, urban America was a referendum on Donald Trump and every Republican was tied to him, except for the few that won in very tough races around the country where they were able to distinguish themselves from the president. But that was the rare Republican race. Uh, So my gut is, is they are they are heavily tied, as is uh, David Perdue, which we may talk about in a little while. But, you know. And I agree. Governor Kemp has a lot of work to do, particularly with independent voters and suburbanites. In particular, Uh, the Republican brand is struggling in suburban America, not just suburban Atlanta. And uh, his agenda, if he sticks to education and health care and mental health and all the things he talked about in his inaugural speech, uh, is going to help.
1: I think that's important to point out, Kevin, I believe I'm correct, that the dates of this poll May they certainly don't take the state of the state into account, which is where he laid out what many people would consider a, a mainstream agenda that could win him uh, more support. And I'm not sure it even includes this—the uh, inauguration itself, where he gave a very brief speech. But again, said I want to work with everybody. So, so the dates were January 7 to 17. So oh, okay. Cross so into it, some of yeah, that, a little not, bit right, into yeah. the inauguration. So, so buddy. Uh, you, I think that um, he does make a point here. At, he, out of the gate, Brian Kemp has certainly promoted issues that can win bipartisan support if, you know, the proof is in the pudding. We'll see how they all come together. But he's got an agenda that has the potential for bipartisan support. He also has an agenda
4: from his campaign, which has the potential for a lot of opposition as well. So I think what he's got to do, in my opinion, he's governor. He can set the agenda. And uh, he's got to concentrate on those issues, I think, that really appeal to all people. One of Governor Deal's closest associates and advisors told me over the University of Georgia two or three weeks ago that you've got to run maybe from the right, but you've got to govern from the middle and there's just no other way around it. He's got he needs everybody because today's uh adversary maybe is tomorrow's ally. So you've got you've got to look at the big picture and Frankly speaking, he just has not had enough opportunity yet to formulate it and put it together. I I wish him well. Let me say that. I wish him well because he's going to be our governor for the next four years, and I want him to succeed because if he succeeds, we all succeed. But he's got to get away from this doctrinaire part of the campaign that he seems to be
1: too focused on, in my opinion. All right. uh, Let's move into other parts of your poll, Kevin because they are instructive in terms of what the legislature is going to be taking up. Let me throw out a few. uh, uh, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but a majority of Georgians, according to the poll, want paper ballots, not ballot marking machines, which are, of course, computers that you vote on that generate a paper trail, and, and it's younger voters in the crosstabs, Kevin, who say they're the ones who prefer paper balloting, but still a, a majority do want that. And that doesn't appear to be the direction that the legislature will head. Uh, the Save Commission, which looked at how to vote next, uh, opted for vote uh, ballot marking machines, rather, the computer version. But it's interesting that the public wants paper ballots.
2: <laughs> yeah, I just think that uh, and, and of course, this warms my heart as someone who's responsible for putting out something on paper every day. I mean, people, people uh, w- you know, when there's so much uncertainty, doubt, divisiveness, they're in a world where we'll write it down because if it's on paper, it's real, it means something, and it and it represents a real commitment. I think that's what it's about. I don't know what our you know our panel and people who uh, are deep into this in terms of running a campaign would think, but that's how it feels to me.
0: Um, to know for sure, I mean, I the, the, I would like to see another question there. But what I think this is really a function of is, is trust and lack of trust. Um, And so I think the reason why people want paper is they want something to hold on to. So if something screwy does happen, they can always go back to it later. I mean, and I think if the compromise were you have a machine where you have touchscreen, but you get a paper receipt of what you did, right, you know, maybe that would be the middle ground. But I think people want verification. And I think we know enough about technology to know that you could, with all good intentions, enter something and you don't know if it's going to get hacked between your pressing the button and it making its way back, you know, to the local. Office or the Secretary of State's office. Well,
1: we do know, buddy, that the legislature, no matter what they decide in terms of the machine, because they do seem to be leaning towards machines, it will whatever they do, there will be a paper trail. There will be a paper
4: trail. However, I got to respectfully disagree with our friend here when when she says you've got to have a receipt of what you did. I don't think you can legally do that. I don't think you can legally come up with a piece of paper that you can carry with you and say, I voted for this person, that person, that person, because of the fraud it would, it would uh, lead to, I think, uh, when you, when you um, really undermine the secret ballot. And that, that's, that's a serious concern uh, uh, for me. It's not like a bank ATM card or anything like that. I think the possibilities of, of, of fraud, if you were able to say, I voted this way and this is what I've got, that that scares me a little bit.
0: I mean, I could see that. I would, this is not an area that I study. Um, so, in terms of what the local elections officials get, that would be anonymous. And maybe if you don't put somebody's name on it. Um, and I think this would only sort of come up in an issue of if there was some type of malfunction and everybody tried to bring their receipt back and present themselves one way or the other. I think that could be raised as an issue. But there are lots of people who actually do want to walk out with a record other than a sticker of their voting so that they could prove that they were there, especially if they don't think especially if they think they're undercounts there.
3: And, I, and I'm not surprised at all that the majority of Georgians are looking for this because of a couple of phenomena. Number one, both the base of the Republican Party and most of the Democratic Party have been crying fraud for a number <laughs> of years in paid advertisements. So they've both been, you know, it was a bipartisan initiative. I'm not surprised that a bipartisan group of people actually think that whatever we're currently doing is not right, because they both agree on that. Uh, and on top of that, every night, at least once a week uh, on the new newspaper headline or on the nightly news, they're reminded of some kind of technological breach with credit cards or personal information. And, you know, I think it'd be interesting if they could, if we could have done five or six other questions about this, but I'm not surprised at all. all right. the majority Let,
1: let's of- let's uh, uh, move through a few of these others, be, because the bottom line is, I think, something that Dr. Gillespie uh, said. It, this is about trust. This is about, we see that there is a, an, a trust gap uh, in, in voters and the way in which they vote. And that's certainly true around the and it's country, not just, not just, the just machines. here in Georgia. And it's also not just the
2: machines. There's this whole question
1: about registration and well, scrubbing rules, sure.
2: all of that. Sure. The machines and, are the very tangible and, and, change. And, but, and that was
1: the next thing I wanted to get to and right. give you a chance just to move through them a, a little bit more quickly. Uh, they also, in your poll, a majority of people said they do not like voter purges. And they would like to see some uh, form of, I assume, legislation which would prevent, which would set guidelines or rules, presumably, for how do you eliminate certain names from uh, the voting rolls. They were unhappy about that. They are concerned about the possibility that early voting could be uh, cut shorter, as there's been some uh, work in that direction. So, they are, in everything they said, they are saying, as Andre points out, we don't trust the system as it exists. Right. Well, I mean,
2: one of the things that, you know, again, Andre made this point is we have 52% of people who, who answered very likely or likely to this question. How likely is it that obstacles to voting or problems with voting machines affected the outcome of Georgia's 2018 election for governor? So more than half of registered voters believe they should be a little suspicious about the outcome of the election of the most important office in our state. I mean, that's a bigger problem than what machines we
1: use. Okay, A couple other findings. This is not unusual because it's been the case in AJC Bowles going back several years. Heath, despite Republican resistance, a majority of Jordans, a big majority, 70-some percent, want Medicaid expanded, period. And, of course, Governor Deal and now Governor Kemp, Speaker Ralston, other Republican leaders have drawn the line and said No. Because we think in the long run we'll be stuck paying the bill because at a certain point the feds won't be able to. But it's. They're, they're fighting upstream on this.
3: Well, I think, I think you, you could parse this question. Here's why Republicans aren't really fighting upstream, right? It's the follow-up question. Do you support the expansion of Medicaid if it means we're gonna raise your taxes and it's gonna bust the state budget and balance budget? And Because what they, you add on to that cost, and if it means that you're not going to get to continue to choose your doctor and we're gonna have massive consolidation of health. So if you put all the cost in there, I imagine the answer to this question would be different. However, uh, what, what Speaker Rawls and everybody said is we don't want to expand the current Medicaid system. However, we are for a waiver that would allow us to expand access to health care insurance for those like Medicaid. But do we need to do a Georgia version of it, not a not a national version? Of
4: Which it. is straight from the RNC talking points. However, you've got to realize that we, the state of Georgia, and I'm sure Governor Deal wishes privately he had made a different decision. We gave up 14 billion dollars in Medicare reimbursement since since uh, the ACA came into effect. And the amount that the state would had to pay would have been minimal, just a very, very small fraction of that. So I think if Governor Deal had to do it all over again, he would do it differently. And if I were uh, Governor Brian Kemp, I'd figure some way out of this box, because we've got to get out of it, because these uh, so called waivers and all of this we 're going to spend a hundred million dollars I wonder who who's going to be our consultant you know the state's going to pay going to pay a million dollars to get this waiver so we 'll just see but but the program is already there. By we the just way, need to
1: say yes. By the way, Mary Margaret Oliver, state representative Mary Margaret Oliver, Oliver a, a frequent uh, panelist on the show, sent a note to us uh, Friday when we talked about the fact that the camp budget sets aside a million dollars for coming up with a, a waiver. Uh, Mary Margaret is under the impression that that waiver is virtually r- written already. And she asks the question of why why it's going to cost a million bucks to create a waiver and and it's a reasonable question that we should get somebody from the Kemp administration to answer for us. let's see who let's see who is hired out as
4: the outside consultant
1: to uh, make this happen
3: Well I, mean, I do think it's gonna be Georgia State or the University of Georgia but you got to have the budget for the actuarial analysis of the waiver itself because what you don't want to do is like a it's like a chess game one move can cost you hundreds of billions, if not billions of dollars. So this is a complex issue. I think they're right to reserve some money for the budget to make sure we have the right uh, actuaries in there looking at what they do. And Grady not a Republican bastion, has actually got the model for us well, on how a, to do that's that. That's what I
1: think Mary Margaret yeah. was, was alluding to. All right, let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way. There's a lot more data we could mine in this AJC poll. There's lots of good stuff in there, Kevin, but we're going to put that on hold and look at that later in shows tomorrow, on Friday perhaps, and want to move on to some other really interesting political news that's developed uh, over this past weekend here in Georgia. You're listening to Political Rewind. We'll be right back.
2: Now is the perfect time to clean out the garage and get rid of that car you no longer need. You'll face the coming months with a fresh start and by donating your used car to GPB, you'll even get a tax deduction. Call 877 GPB 1 Car or donate securely
4: online at gpb.org/cars. And thanks.
1: Coal miners often say the work's about more than a job.
4: I love coal mining. If I was able today, I'd I'd be working in the mines.
0: But Black Lung drastically changes their lives.
3: The day you pick that dinner bucket up and go in the mines, that's the day you sign your death warrant. I'm Audie Cornish. Coal
0: miners grapple with Black Lung and their futures this afternoon on All Things Considered from
1: NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB and gpbnews.org. Buddy Darden, Democrat Lucy McBath has been a member of the Georgia congressional delegation for less than a month and over the weekend she drew her first opponent in the 2020 election. Brandon Beach, state senator, former state senator Brandon Beach declared he's going to run against her. He said he knows there will be others uh, on the GOP side but he's going to focus on Lucy McBath and getting her out as quickly as he can. And he'll be a formidable opponent. I don't know anybody
4: who in that district who I think would be a stronger one and this includes the former Congresswoman Karen Handel. In fact, uh, as, as he probably knows, a lot of the Republicans wanted to let off go ahead and be elected for the partial term and then come back strong in 2018 with a uh, Republican their liking. Uh, so this is no no surprise because uh, Ms. Handel has not exactly been uh, The darling of all the Republicans anyway, and they'll come back united. So uh, Congresswoman McBath's going to have a hands full, but I wouldn't, we all underestimated her before, so I wouldn't totally underestimate (laughs) her again.
0: I mean, so there are a couple of things here. One, it's not surprising that she would draw a challenger. Um, You know, if you're going to try to take out an incumbent, it's better to do it sooner rather than later because the longer they serve, the more deep their incumbency advantage sort of grows. Um, It's also not surprising that Republicans would want to challenge because I think there may still be a question of how purple this district actually is. So is it purple or is it blue? Um, And there's some people who may be thinking that McBath rode Stacey Abrams coattails in the area. And so if Abrams is or isn't we don't know yet. Going to be on the ballot in 2020. Will you get the same type of turnout that could actually benefit a McBath downstream?
1: So he's been a uh, he's represented North Fulton County, of course. He's very Republican part of the sixth district. Some of his uh, uh, votes are very conservative, and it'll be appealing up there in North Fulton. But as Andra suggests, what is the rest of the district purple or blue? Uh, is is he going to be able to attract? Uh, a significant support from the more Democratic parts of the district. Certainly not going right. to get it into CAB. I mean, this is assuming he is the candidate against Lucy yeah, McBath, he, which he, is not a fair assumption.
3: He, he's got a long way to go to yes. win, win the primary. And full disclosure, Brandon's a friend and a potential client of mine in this next cycle. So I want to have that out there. But what, what, what I think Brandon sees as he looks at this is he's represented the district. He's been a, he, yes, he has a conservative voting record, but he also has a pragmatic voting record. And the top three issues in that district. District, you know, for your listeners, I was the chief of staff for Johnny Isakson when he represented the sixth congressional district. It's the most highly educated and the most affluent congressional district in the South. Still is. It's a little more purple, but it's not truly purple yet. Uh, Stacey Abrams and Lucy McBath overperformed Hillary Clinton in that district by five or six points. That's they were above a presidential turnout by five or six points. Brian Kemp and Karen Handel underperformed Trump from a presidential, which means there were a lot of Republican voters who just did not go out and vote for whatever reason in this election. So there is a mathematical argument that it is not quite as purple as it was. Lucy McBath will have a voting record with Nancy Pelosi, right, who who won't jive with a lot of the percentage of that district, and it depends on how she votes. One question
4: now. Senator Beach, I believe, has part of Cherokee County, but yes. Cherokee County is not in the congressional district. Is that right? I think that's correct if yeah. you look
3: at the lines. But remember, Brandon Beach, the top three issues in that district have always been public education, traffic congestion, and job creation. So he was big on
1: transportation. I mean, that was one of the efforts that he took on in a major role. But he also uh, he was—he he voted for uh, Campus Carry. Uh, Kevin, he's a he believes in restricting abortion. He supports at least one version of the religious liberty uh, proposals that have been floating around the Capitol forever now. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to watch how it unfolds. But it means, and again, there will be other Republicans, but Lucy McBath has a big target on her back. Right.
2: Well, Heath, I just got to ask you, I mean, if you're thinking about this guy's client, is he going to run as it, uh, with like Trump, I mean, in other words, is he gonna is he gonna be in the Trump camp, or or will some other Republican decide they can win the primary by doing that?
3: Well, I think Brandon fits more the mold of Johnny Isaacson at the end of the day, a good conservative um, principle and policy, but also pragmatic approach. Uh, I think that'll be more of his model than uh, than the president himself. Although I think Brandon's going to call balls and strikes on the president's policies. And that's the way for a Republican to win the primary and win a tough general election. All right. Let me let
1: me move on to uh, um, yet another uh, interesting possible race that we're watching. Uh, Before I do, um, Andre Gillespie, Governor Kemp and uh, the mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, Arthur Blank, a few others. They were all up in New York this morning. They rang the opening bell of the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, and it's because they're promoting the Super Bowl, of course. I flew in from uh, out of town this early this morning or mid morning, and the Super Bowl signs are already up and all over. Mm-hmm. You've seen them too on mm-hmm. Hartsfield International Airport. But mentioning Brian Kemp on the inauguration show, mm-hmm. you uh, talked about his edu- Brian Kemp's educational background. And you wanted a second to say something about that today.
0: Yeah, so the bios that I had read mentioned that he had gone to Athens Academy. They never mentioned that he had transferred to. Uh, Clark Central in Athens for high school. So I just went with the bios that I read, and it turns out that I was wrong about that part. Um, so I think there's still lots of things to discuss about upbringing and things that one learns there, but I've, I can see he, he did transfer out of Athens Academy to, to go to high school elsewhere for a public school.
1: So Andre Gillespie's been doing this show for probably, what, four years off and something on like uh, that. stuff like that? I And uh, so now you've made one mistake. I make them every single day.
0: So do I. But like, <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, we talked about this. And so, you know, if I'm. If I make a mistake, I think it is important. It's something I try to teach my students that you own up to it. That's the difference uh, okay. between real and fake news. So I'm sorry. <laughs> you want,
1: No, that's great. You wanted to do that. All right. So let's move on. Uh, Kevin, your poll has interesting numbers that could be setting up what may be a contest to look for in 2020. What was Stacey Abrams' approval rating in your poll? Do you have it handy? It's 51% f- approval.
2: But I I do think it's important to note her unfavorable, which is really the term we use in the poll, is 40 percent. Okay. So but David Perdue's favorable is 45 percent. So she's 51. He's 45.
1: But his unfavorable is just 30. He has a much bigger don't know. If you've got President Trump and Brian Kemp at 37 percent in that poll, buddy, and you got David Perdue up at 45, his people have to feel kind of good about that. I'm going to make a prediction here. You heard Uh-oh. it right I'm here. A, wait
4: a minute. <laughs> I, a rewind, it. I got a bit of a And it on. will be that Stacey Abrams will not run for the United States
1: Senate. All right. Wow. Well, that's the next talk. That's exactly wow. what we're going to talk see? about. Stacey Abrams is out on her thank you tour of the state of Georgia. She left yesterday. She's going around the state. Under uh, Gillespie, everybody is asking what's going on. She's made it clear she's going to run for office again. Is she going to run against David Perdue or hope to be the Democratic candidate against David Perdue? Is she going to wait till uh, Kemp's first term is up? And one of the people that wanted to know about this was the reporter for The Washington Post who came to you and said in an article that was published in The Post over the weekend and asked you what you thought about where Abrams is headed. And you had some interesting comments.
0: Um So, I'm just going to say what I think today. Um. Right. In terms of thinking about what she wants to do, I, mean, I think part of it is whether or not she loses momentum by waiting four years. year. So I think that that's something that she's factoring in. And if she senses that, you know, her luster will have, you know, won't be as strong in 2022 as, you know, it might be next year, then she might make the earlier pitch. Then I think it's whatever office it is that she actually wants. Does she want another legislative uh, job or does she want, you know, to have um, an executive uh, position? Then I also think we have to think about a couple of things so, I think these are the unknowns. One, you know, Senator Perdue is going to be tied to President Trump. President Trump will likely be on the ballot in 2020. Is that going to be a help or a hindrance to Republican candidates? Um, and then in 2022, We don't know yet how Governor Kemp is going to govern. Um, And so if it turns out that he actually is a good governor and he gets over this lack of a honeymoon period, then that makes him a much more formidable candidate to run against um, in four years than it was in 2018 when they were running for an open seat. So she's factoring all of those things into account as she makes her decision.
3: I'm looking at this as a Republican, so obviously I'm the last person that should give Stacey Abrams any advice, but one thing is true as a political science fact is that once you've run a race and built up the kind of name ID and particular the kind of kind of buyer's remorse that some independents may have, which is why her favorability is higher than what she actually got in the vote totals in Georgia, uh, is you know, she has this national brand that we've not ever seen anybody have in Georgia since Jimmy Carter, right, really in a lot, a lot of ways, and this ability to raise nationally. Her kind of time is now, Uh, it used to be that two years was a lifetime in politics. Now it could be two months, right? So four years is a long, long way. And I like uh, Andre's uh, analysis of that. If she waits, she may miss out on that opportunity because I can tell you what, Raphael Warnock, had a great opening pitch yesterday from Ebenezer. That was a great speech that he have. We as Republicans view both Teresa Tomlinson, a frequent guest on this show, uh, Raphael Warnock and others rising stars in the Democratic Party as formidable. Uh, and David Perdue knows that, and his team is not taking any of this lightly. Um, he's, he's glad to be ahead of where he is, but he, he knows that head-to-head against Stacey Abrams, he's already behind. So, And as you know, he do. ran
4: as a total outsider last time. Now, he's gone to be 100 percent insider. And uh, I don't say that to uh, praise him or, or in any way to denigrate him, but that's just the facts, And so he's going to have to have a totally different approach.
1: So uh, speaking of David Perdue and his uh, reelection efforts in 2020, there's already a TV spot running on local stations here Uh, Bradley george uh, uh, of gpb news saw it on channel 11. i was a little surprised by that i thought when i first saw this spot online i thought maybe it was going to be a web spot no the organization that's buying time on this really put some money into it to be on broadcast television let's listen to the radio version of the tv spot that's uh, going after purdue
3: it's the longest government shutdown in history 800,000 workers furloughed or working without being paid. Food safety inspections stopped nationwide, and pilots have warned our air security is now at risk. And where's David Perdue? Instead of being independent, he sides with his party leaders, who refuse to even allow a vote to reopen the government. Tell David Perdue, put Georgia over party and demand an end to the shutdown.
1: So, Kevin, clearly that spot, and it's it's being used against other Republicans in other states, so clearly it's more focused on the shutdown itself, but it's also— really going after Purdue, and it's an effort to make him more vulnerable to a challenger in a couple of years.
2: Well, I think it's probably also part of that bigger effort, right? The math sort of favors Democrats in an effort to take over the Senate. So there's going to be a lot of this with every issue they can dredge up. But we let Buddy off the hook. You made that
4: bold prediction that Stacey will not run. I got to know why. Why wouldn't she? I think the nomination is hers for the asking. However, it's a long, hard road between now and November of 2020. And if she wins the race, she goes to the Senate. And then once you get to be in the Senate, you're one of 100, and you really can't set your own agenda and be in charge. I think she wants to be in charge. I think she wants to be governor of the state. I think she wants to be out front and be in a position to do things that matter rather than go to Washington, occupy, a share, and then be part of, I, part of a
1: group. Okay, Andra, that's one argument. But what he said is really persuasive too. You've got your organization is in place, the money people mm-hmm. are still there for you. All of the, I would think if I'm Stacy Abrams, this is a very tough decision because of those contravening uh, uh, issues. I don't know how you turn your back on the apparatus that you have right now.
0: Um, I mean, and I I would agree with that. Um, But it's, And and I think part of this is, I mean, she doesn't have a bird in hand, but this is closer to a bird in hand versus two in the bush type of situation. I think that's why she's taking it seriously. I think this is why she's gone to D.C. to meet with the DSCC. And and she
1: met Chuck Schumer, invited her to come talk to him. He's pressuring her to run. So,
0: I mean, I think she's taking it seriously. And I think she is just weighing the calculus and trying to figure out if she can look into the future and sort of see where politics are going to be and see how weak her her Republican opponent, whichever one it is, could potentially be in two or four years. I
1: think one of the quotes in the Washington Post piece that you had, and please, if I'm not quite accurate, tell me, was that she's going to want to watch to see what happens to Brian Kemp's favorability number. The fact of the matter is, though, that if she doesn't make some declaration by early spring, let's say, or even March sometime, she's really, it seems to me, uh, creating some significant issues for the Democratic Party in a broader way. Teresa Tomlinson is eager to consider making this race. Maybe Raphael Warnock, is, as Heath has pointed out. You can only freeze people for so long without paying a penalty.
0: My sense, and this is what I've gotten from just sort of paying attention to the media not necessarily having talked to her personally, um, is that she does intend to make a decision by spring. So, um, you know, so I'm just going to wait for her to do that and take her her out of work for that.
1: Let's do this. Let's get to another break uh, because we're running short on time. And when we come back, Heath Garrett was about to make a comment on this. We're going to let you do that. And then we're going to talk presidential politics. This is Political Rewind. On the next
4: Fresh Air, Terry Gross talks with Jason Rezaian. He was the only American citizen reporting from Iran on a permanent basis when he was arrested in 2014, accused of being a spy, and held in one of Iran's most notorious prisons. He was released after two and a half years. Rezaian is suing the Iranian government, and he has a new memoir. Join us.
1: Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 here on GPB and gpbnews.org. Here we go. Heath wanted to make a comment about the David Perdue, anti-David Perdue TV spot. Go ahead.
3: Bill, I just think it was not just a shot across the bow. It was a a shot at the heart of the ship. (laughs) Uh, And it shows where the state of Georgia is now from a global political perspective. National money believes that the electoral votes in 2020 are in play in Georgia for the first time. We had $100 million spent in the 2018 cycle. You could see $150 million spent because they're going to, the Democrats believe they can take out a U.S. senator and they believe the electoral votes are in play. And if you can win the electoral votes in Georgia, as a Democrat for president, the electoral map around the country becomes almost impossible for a Republican to win, whether you're Donald Trump or anybody else. And so I think as we sit here on Political Rewind, that television ad is symbolic of the amount of money that's about to be spent on both sides in a way we've never seen. We're going to look a lot more like Florida.
2: Uh, Heath, it sounds like you're saying then the National Democrats Will push Stacey hard to run, right? Right or wrong,
3: I, I do think they will because nobody can turn out African American voters better than Stacey Abrams in Georgia.
0: And one of the things I, I would point out from the from being in Philadelphia for the twenty sixteen Democratic National, one of the reasons why Stacey Abrams was there was to make the case to the DNC that Georgia was competitive and worthy of investment. So she's been the one that's very much been at the forefront of making that particular case. So I mean, you know, she's taking that into account, and other people are putting pressure on her because they were like you said this you kind of demonstrate it so now you need to kind of stick around and finish yeah, it
1: that's okay really good all right speaking of 2020 and the fact that we now think george is definitely going to be a player in that uh, election presidential election uh kamala harris senator from california declared her uh, entry into the race she's officially in the third woman to uh, declare on the democratic Four well, three declared at this point, right?
0: No, I'm, I mean Tulsi Gabbard, Elizabeth Warren, oh, Kirsten okay. Brown, and right.
1: Kamala Harris. Right. Okay. Fine. There, we know there are going to be at least four, if not more, women. But um, more to the point, speaking of of the South again as a possible player, Kamala Harris is going to go to Iowa next week. We we know that. Um, we've already seen other early entrants into the Democratic race, you know, heading to Iowa to uh, court voters there. But here's what's interesting, Andra. I believe it's Friday. Kamala Harris is not going to Iowa. Hampshire. She's going to South Carolina. Right. Because of the African-American vote and a sense that perhaps like Georgia, There is a growing potential for African-American voters to make a difference in presidential politics in the South.
0: Well, I mean, I think that does. I mean, and especially when you've got a field that's as full as this is in order to gain delegates, you know, while you might be able to write off parts of the South in a general election, African-American votes are actually really crucial in a primary being able to win them because because if most of the whites are voting Republican, then all of a sudden you can have black majorities voting in, in in Democratic primary. So it becomes really important. The other reason why it's really important is, you know, Kamala Harris would have to do well in Iowa. She doesn't necessarily have to win Iowa, but she can't like be embarrassed in Iowa um, in order to be able to proceed. But she demonstrates her viability if she can do have a strong showing in Iowa and New Hampshire and then put it together with something decisive in South Carolina. And given the fact that we suspect that Cory Booker is getting ready to enter into the race, right? I think people are probably going to try to figure out which of the two is left standing after South Carolina, because and that's the first state with a big black thank you, population. Thank
1: you for the transition. You can make the point that you were about to Buddy, but you have to add to that, Cory Booker came to Plains, Georgia over the weekend to visit with President and Mrs. Carter.
4: Yes, he did. And why in the world would he come to Plains, Georgia, and for any other reason than to get the blessing of Jimmy Carter? I mean, that's pretty That's evident. pretty good and, reason and to come. He's got to be the so first that's, person that's, from
3: New Jersey that, to come to Plains. That, that, I,
4: that's a pl- good I've enough reason. I've been to Plains. It's not easy to find. He really wanted to go there. He really wanted to go there, and uh, every, every presidential candidate now uh, goes to Plains to uh, pay homage to Jimmy Carter. So I think there's no question that he's going to be in it, too, as well. What I was about to say, though, is that South Carolina is changing also. As you know, there was a very close congressional race uh, there, and, and uh, the Democrats took back uh, South District 1, which is the old Mark Sanford <laughs> district over there. Uh, from a Trumpite. And District 7 is still up in the air. That was a close, close race, uh, close, close race in South Carolina for governor. In other other offices, so in my view, South Carolina might not be in play, but they'll have to spend some money there. Republicans gonna have to spend some money in South Carolina.
1: I, I of course it's North Carolina. You're all waving at me, North Carolina dummy. See, I so, told you I make mistakes. I that, never show. District Nine. <laughs>
3: yes, I, I know. I know. I got a, I
1: got the state <laughs> and the district number well, one.
3: I'll make a prediction. Like <laughs> since Buddy made a prediction early, I'm Uh-oh, gonna make uh, another a prediction bold prediction here that uh, based on the way that the delegates are selected for the Democratic primary and caucuses around the. Country and the fact that super delegates are basically gone, Kamala Harris is the front runner because there are gender preferences for delegate slots and there are racial and ethnic ones. And I think that if, if Corey can really uh, Booker, Senator Booker can really challenge her, then it may split that vote. But if she gets a little bit of momentum, uh, that the system is set up for an African American female to run the tables of the Democratic primary.
0: I mean, I'm not 100% sure how that will work because usually they try to uh, balance it so that you have a man, men and women together, so that you have roughly equal representation yeah, as I far think, as the delegates are concerned
3: yeah we're gonna to have to watch how that uh, yeah. unfolds. it's kind of the Obama strategy and how he snuck uh, up on the, the yes
1: the, the, well another advantage that Kamala Harris has uh, is she's California and California's moved its primary up they're gonna now be in I think early March which will be helpful to a, a candidate from the Oakland area I do think
2: uh, you know uh, the point he's made about the electoral math will be a big big deal uh with california i mean all things being equal you'd love a california candidate right if you're the democrats
1: by the way uh I didn't mean to cut that short, but I think we'll see whether you'd want to have a California candidate in the race or not. But, by the way, you know, uh, Jimmy Carter quoted as saying, I'm really glad you're in the race to uh, Senator Booker, which is, of course, not an endorsement, but if I'm Cory Booker, I'm going to take as much as I can out of that. It did remind me a little bit of how President Carter got himself in a little bit of hot water when he introduced Stacey Abrams at an event early in the gubernatorial race when she was uh, challenging Stacey Abrams and seemed to be endorsing her much to the dismay of the Abrams campaign. He had to back away from that. In fact, we mentioned the Evans, on the, the show... Evans,
4: Evans campaign uh, received an invitation for her to come down, and she had dinner uh, right. with Stacey. Evans had uh, dinner with her family, with the president's family, President Carter's family. So it's it's a difficult difficult situation. You have to be
1: very careful. All right, we are just about out of time for today's show. Uh, Kevin Riley, a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for a terrific poll. We're right, going to be you know, talking about it for the next week. Yeah, and uh, I hope you get to that question about people on the cell phone
2: question, because I was going to put that to our panel, but I'll let that go. Go ahead. Get, well, you got about 30 seconds. I mean, we had people, 45 uh, percent uh, said they, they follow the law all of the time, which means no touching free. their cell phone. The hands-free law. And 40 percent said most of the time. So, buddy... All of the time or most of the time with the cell phone law? Virtually all the time.
4: <laughs> well, that's not a choice. A couple public. of times I've forgotten, I'll be Kenny <laughs> William pick my phone up. But I have a hands free device in my car.
1: All right, uh, Heath Garrett, thank you for being here. Did you want to respond to that question or on the advice of your attorney, or are you remaining silent? I follow the law. <laughs> Andre Gillespie, thank you too for being here as well. Thank you. I know you follow oh, the law. She's a law abiding of, uh, citizen without question.
0: I plead the fifth, especially when I'm late getting here. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: that's it for us. We're out of time for today's show. We're back with you tomorrow. Uh, Tamar Hellerman and Greg Bluestein are here. I'm glad Tamar's here, especially because she can give us the lay of the land up in Washington right now. Eric Tannenblatt is here as well. And uh, so it's Scott Hokum, who's been who people have said might be a candidate for U.S. Senate as well. So we'll see you tomorrow at two for another political rewind.